Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. This morning, we are welcoming Dean Hacker to the show. Dean is a global technology executive and visionary leader that delivered more than $3 billion in business value for top companies in the high-tech, consumer goods, and financial services sector. An expert strategist, catalyst, and team builder who successfully executed large-scale programs, transformations, turnarounds, mergers, and operations excellence using Agile, ITIL, and Lean Six Sigma. He managed $300 million budgets, led global teams of 500 people and negotiated strategic deals with global technology partners. Dean currently serves on the board of Sim Chicago. He's a founding member of Chicago CIO Leadership Association and a member of AITP Chicago. He won an Orbi Award in 2017 as CTO of the Private Bank and was a finalist for the Chicago CIO of the Year Award in both 2018 and 2019. Dean is an advisor to emerging technology companies and previously served in global technology leadership roles at CIBC Bank, Nielsen, Motorola, and the Hewlett Packard Company. Dean is a distinguished graduate of Arizona State University as well. Welcome to the show, Dean. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Great to have you on. Yeah, Dean, and can you please share with our listeners more about your role as CTO at CBIC? Yeah, CIBC Bank USA, based in Chicago, with global headquarters in Toronto, is uh, one of the 20 biggest banks across North America. A lot of folks in the U.S. don't really know too much about them because until they acquired the private bank, they had a very small presence in the U.S. My role there was really end-to-end technology uh, responsibility for four lines of banking, as well as um, all of the shared infrastructure used throughout the branches. The private bank and then later CIBC Bank USA was one of the largest banks in the U.S. with less than 50 branches. And so it's a branch-like strategy and also a, um, a buy preference versus building. So we also had an asset-like strategy, which served us well and uh, set it up for an acquisition by CIBC in 2017. That must have been pretty interesting going through that acquisition. And there was quite a few of those going on over the last couple of decades. With your experience, you know, what do you see as the future of banking? Is it going to be more digital or more of that lightweight, less actual physical buildings? Or what, what are you seeing? Yeah, I think banking is in for a dramatic transformation. It's already been starting for the last few years, but will continue. You know, my office was downtown Chicago, and one day I had the inspiration to take a photograph. If you've been downtown, sometimes you can see a rack of newspaper stands, like where people used to pick up a newspaper off of the street. And behind that was a branch of Bank of America. And I took the photograph, and the title was you know, 40 years from now, maybe even sooner, what's a newspaper? You know, what are kids and 
grandkids going to think, what, what, hey, what was a newspaper? And my thought was, you know, what's a bank? But because the idea of what a bank is from, you know, when we were growing up till now, it's dramatically different. You went in, you know, it was a big building with you know, a lot of granite and looked strong, that kind of thing. And, you know, now it's basically in your pocket. It's your phone, you know. And even um, even things like uh, ATMs that have been around now for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years, took a while for people to gravitate towards. With the pandemic, you know, where can we spend cash? Real cash, real currency. I mean, not very many places. Most people I talk to say the only time they use cash is when they're tipping. And uh, the places where I used to tip don't even accept cash anymore. So, um, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're definitely, we've moved into the era of plastic, you know, with the apps on your phone and that to be able to do touchless payments and person-to-person payments with things like Venmo, PayPal, Zelle, and the like. You know, it, it's just going to continue to go that direction. And the cryptocurrencies, of course, have really taken off in the past couple of years. And uh, so we're just going to see continued uh, progress toward digitization of the financial system, which is going to create a lot of transformation, a lot of turmoil and disruption. And eventually it'll settle into something that probably feels very seamless, very almost invisible in your life. It's just there and you make a payment when you need to and you authenticate to make it secure. And, uh, you know, that's where I see it going. You know, not not to belabor a different point, but I was at the grocery store and an older gentleman asked to buy a newspaper and the the younger checkout person had no idea how to ring up a newspaper and had to ask for help to ring up a newspaper. I, I found that, right? So something that was every day or like to your point of going to the bank, I remember going to the bank at least, what, once a week with my mom growing up? Right to get cash for the week or to you know put your your paycheck in, just these things that we all see and that that seamlessness right is everywhere we see it and the Venmo and everybody's got the ability to transfer cash digitally now. I did go get a Euro plate the other day and I paid in cash and they gave me change and I I didn't know what to do with it to be totally honest, right? Like what is this? metal coin circular things right like when's the last time i handled change so you know you mentioned cryptocurrency and some of those other things you know obviously there's a a huge amount of security that's necessary for these things to you know not to be hacked taken advantage of ripped off you know what are some of the things that you're seeing that you think are are going to be critical for us to protect our money, our accounts, our personal information? Yeah, well, uh, cryptocurrencies are all based on the blockchain, which is a technology. It's a shared ledger of sorts that the proponents of it say it's immutable. So it's more secure than anything we have today. It's like public record. And so you really can't dispute it. But Anytime that we've created technology that seems to be immutable or something that can't be sunk, you know, there are issues, right? You know, especially the first few times in the first few generations. I mean, there are issues that have to be resolved. And there certainly has been some issues a few years ago 
with uh, some of the early cryptocurrencies and some of the markets where those were being used and some of the transactions that were for things that couldn't be transacted through a regular financial institution. So I think we're going to continue to, to have some bumps in the road on that front. But in the long run, I think that's where things will go as well. And you know, one of the challenges with crypto uh, from a transaction standpoint is just it's very expensive from a processing perspective. So it's not fast. It's not meant for you know, high volume yet. But as the processing power in our servers and cloud services really expands, you know, we're going we're to see more of those transactions. So and I think we're starting to see governments uh, getting involved in that as well. There's a lot of speculation that the Federal Reserve, you know, will come up with a digital dollar or something like that at some point. You know, then it will be more widely accepted. And uh, already it's, it's, there's a lot of enthusiasts out there that are, you know, bidding it up. It's also kind of a investment vehicle of sorts, which is, uh, which is a very risky one. But it's uh, it's going to continue to digitize. But, I mean, the whole world is digitizing, and you know, hard currency I think will be like those John F. Kennedy dollar coins that that my parents collected. You know, they will be rare and maybe more valuable over time. But you're not going to use it for everyday transactions. Yeah, I, I, there was a conversation where I was involved in the other day where you know the uh, quantum computing may because of its ability to negotiate the various security measures, the you know, uh, the encryption methods that crypto might be, unless they change whatever their encryption methodology is, you know, like when it started, you're, you're talking about 21 years to be able to, you know, decrypt something from a brute force standpoint. Now you're talking nine to 10 minutes. It's going to have a dramatic impact on, on the trust that people have with some of those encryption methods. So it'll be interesting. Do you see, is that part of like your thought process or do you think that's the, the, the quantum computing is just, because it's, it's a lot of theoretical from my understanding at this point? Well, it's early days on quantum. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on that, but what I understand is that it will completely change the game when it comes to uh, security encryption, both for cryptocurrencies, for example, but also for uh, security protocols that protect us today. And so, you know, the reason why we have, you know, eight or 12 or 14 character passwords is every time you add a character, it adds to the length of time that it would take for someone to break into that from a brute force perspective. Well, quantum comes along and uh, provides the, the power to do that brute force uh, breaking, code breaking, uh, within a much shorter time, as you were saying, Patrick. So that that will change a lot of things. But of course, quantum has to mature. It's you know barely operable in controlled labs and things like that. And uh, when we get it to the point where it's in our cars and our phones and things like that, which you know could be years away, if ever, but could be a long time in coming, then I think we're going to see dramatic changes in what's possible with computing. Interesting. So one of the things we've talked about before is from a leadership standpoint, and and obviously our podcast is is about innovation, and it's about you know the digital enterprise, like you're talking about digitization of everything. And one of the things you've identified about yourself is that 
our previous conversation probably being uh, uh, not proof positive of this, but obviously, you know, being more of a generalist. And, and that's one of the things I want to talk about is you've got your perspective of yourself is that you are more of a generalist. And, and I think when we see what we reinforce and what we coach and what the educational processes of America are, they really try to make people more of a specialist. Can you explain why you think, why you believe being a generalist is part of why you've been successful? Yeah, I think that, you know, I try to live on the corner of strategy and innovation, so to speak. And I've done that throughout my career from the perspective that, you know, trying to find real business value from technology and innovations with technology to deliver to the companies that I've worked for. So from that perspective, I try to start with a business perspective first and then apply the technology. You know, there's a lot of times that we get tempted by looking at some new technology and, and then trying to find a solution or trying to find a problem to solve with that technology. And that's usually not a good outcome. It, it can work sometimes, but usually it's better to start from the other direction, look for the business problem and then apply the technology to solve it. So my perspective has been to have a broad view of the world and the business, and then to go deep when necessary into technology to solve a particular problem. And you know, I did that early in my career at Hewlett Packard with some early forms of artificial intelligence. So we solved the problem relating to the configuration of servers. And there were 400,000 different combinations of how you could configure a server. Turns out 97% of those 400,000 permutations were incorrect. They couldn't be built or they couldn't run. So how do you take, you know, find those 3% that are actually buildable and correct? And applying rules to that based on expert knowledge of how to build those kinds of systems you know, we put together a solution that uh, saved Hewlett Packard a lot of time and effort in correcting orders that were unbuildable or inconfigurable at the customer site. So in that case, I was going deep into some of the AI technology. It wasn't very exciting at the time. It was very early on. There weren't a lot of options. There were a few case studies, but ultimately we were able to put together the technical components to solve the business problem using a different approach than just standard programming and um, you know very proud of that of that time in my career that's great so dean just a, a quick question because i know the orby awards are so coveted and so special and sounds like you've got kind of a unique philosophy when it comes to your thinking and you know how you approach business needs so curious was that why you won the orby award or would you credit that to uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I was fortunate to win an Orby Award the first year the program came to Chicago in 2017. And that was during the time that I was at the private bank before the acquisition uh, with CIBC. And, you know, it's hard for me to say exactly why I won, um, but I think it was really kind of based on, you know, the business results that we had. It, it was really a strong team at the private bank. and you know, we built a strong back office to support uh, an exceptionally strong front office. So we covered off a lot of the 
gaps and the missing pieces. I used to say when I arrived, it was like a baseball team without a second baseman. We could play the game, but we couldn't cover the bases as well as we should. And so by filling in the field and by upping, you know, the, the back office technology to modernize it, you know, we, we came a long ways. And that came along with upgrading the talent on the team in some cases, both with existing folks giving them training opportunities, leadership opportunities. In particular, I'm a big proponent of the SIM RLF program that provides leadership training for folks mid-career. And, you know, just all of that combined, I think, was uh, what made it successful. But the icing on the cake was actually the philanthropic activities that we got involved with. So uh, working with Chicago groups called Icy Stars and Big Shoulders Fund, which provides a lot of the funding for the parochial schools around Chicago that can't afford, you know, really for all the components of education themselves. We have a community service program where we go out to the schools every year and teach them about banking. And uh, I participated in that classroom teaching a couple of years. And I thought it was kind of, it was an excellent program. It's called Money Savvy. Excellent, excellent program. But it was kind of like all cardboard and coloring book kinds of things. And I thought like we could really bring some more life to this, make it more modern. And so we actually created a game in partnership with IC Stars. The interns there developed the actual game about helping kids learn how to manage their money. And it was uh, kind of a Space Invaders theme. As they killed Space Invaders, they earned points, which turned into money. And uh, at the end of that, they got to choose whether they wanted to spend it. You know, maybe they wanted a yellow spaceship or an orange spaceship, but it didn't really help them a lot, you know, in terms of their capabilities. Maybe they wanted some advanced lasers. You know, that would cost them some money, but that was an investment, right? Or they could uh, save it up for later or donate it to a worthy cause. So what we found through that exercise is we really created a, a great dynamic between the team at the bank, my team at the bank, the charities and the schools across Chicago to, uh, to give them something. So maybe that was the, the thing that carried me across the goal line. I'll never know for sure, but I like to believe that that's, uh, that's all part of it. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. It always amazes me how much Chicago's philanthropic community is just so active. You mentioned some really great organizations. Uh, I know Shelly and I are both very much involved in IC stars as well. Just uh, the amazing work that they do of uh, helping us build out and, you know, prepare people who traditionally are, are not connected to these types of networks. Uh, they do just a fantastic job of, of getting people involved, getting them up to speed, and then engaging them in ways that I think are, you know, life-changing for the families that are involved. Right? It just it has a generational impact. It's just an amazing group. I couldn't agree more. We sponsored two cycles of IC Stars during my time at the bank, and um, the next time you see uh, Sandy or Amanda or any of the folks over there, ask them about the mariachi band that we brought in to uh, recognize the teams over there as a part of the program. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a, it's an amazing program. Yeah. Amazing people. The, the level of uh, rigor in that program and the, the, the results 
are, are visible, very visible. And that uh, whenever I participate with one of the teas or anything like that, I always follow with some of the folks that I connect with and I see them in Chicago. I see them. I, I ran into one. I was visiting over at uh, the OCC and ran into uh, one of their students, one of the graduates in the, in the cafeteria and sat down and had a nice conversation with him and he's doing fantastic. So really just uh, when you think about like the needs of the city, right? We need more technologists. We need more professionals. You know, I, I look at it as like it's technology money ball of like there's people with the capability, people with the will and, you know, you know, they just need a connection. And that's what I see stars does. And I think it's, yeah, Sandy's awesome. They're, it's just an amazing team over there. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more, uh, Patrick. I, the one thing I'd uh, leave out there for your listeners is um, it doesn't stop with the programs that they offer. I mean, it really, you really need to look at their graduates. We hired a few, very pleased with the attitude, the professionalism, uh, the work ethic from the folks that we hired from their program. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's full circle. When you do that, you really, um, you know, complete the process of helping and helping yourself really in, uh, in being better and getting more talent into your organization. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us what you're up to now? Uh, I know you've gone through a couple of, uh, uh, decisions. You're, you're moving into a new stage of where you want to be with your, with how you're engaging with, uh, the market and tell us a little bit more about what's going on with you. Yeah. Thank you. So I started a company in 2020 during the middle of the pandemic called Highland Grove Partners. And uh, it's really uh, a combination of a few of my passions, uh, in particular, my passion for mentoring and supporting folks who can use my knowledge and experience. And that turned out to be a few emerging tech companies. So I um, am an advisor, uh, the executive council or advisory board of a few companies that I find very interesting, very promising, almost all of which are using artificial intelligence as part of their solution and uh, helping them to uh, develop their products and, and develop the market for them and the mar- you know, positioning in the market for them. So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is uh, helping CIOs and other senior technology leaders and other business leaders, frankly, understand the potential that some of these technologies can bring to their organization. So from a strategy perspective, digitization, automation, and all of those kinds of things. So really serving both sides of the IT ecosystem, you know, some of the emerging technology vendors and the existing consumers or users of that technology. That's awesome. That's awesome. What's the uh, most interesting thing you've learned in the last, uh, you know, 12 months since, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of that one year of the pandemic. Well, I'm, I'm always reminded that uh, innovation is, uh, is hard, really. I mean, it sounds fun, but it's really hard. I forget the exact numbers, but the actual, like, time and the number of failed experiments to create a successful new product is astronomical. 
you know, so you might, you might actually have a great product, but you go through thousands and thousands upon ideas in order to get to that one product that succeeds. And you don't normally hit it the first time, right? So, you know, Thomas Edison or any famous inventor, like they're, they're, they're known for all their successes, but like if you count up all their failures, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, the persistence that you have to spend uh, to come up with those successes. And even when you have something that's really innovative, like convincing somebody else that they should do something different than what they've been doing every day for the last five, 10 or more years is a challenge. So finding the people that are receptive to those new ideas you know, can be challenging. But when you win in that game, it's a home run and it's really exciting, right? So that's what I found. So that's really, uh, that's really where I'm at today. And I'm very pleased to be working with a handful of really great companies that I think are either strong in their field and about to uh, take off like a rocket or um, still very early, but with a brilliant idea and a grand vision for how they can disrupt the industry and change the world. That's great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on today uh, and share your experience and, and what you're seeing. And I think uh, it's a good place to, to wrap up as uh, on the innovation conversation where uh, to your point is it's, it is very hard. It's very, it seems fun, but there's a lot of getting kicked in the head. Right. And that's really important for, for people out there who want to do innovation who want to be on that, that side of the equation of understanding uh, failure is part of that story, right? Like it's you, you can't have success without making a lot of mistakes and, you know, you, to your point, you got to steal yourselves to that and you just got to set your shoulders. Uh, you know, I keep your legs pumping like they say in football, right? Take the hit and keep on moving. So, but like I said, I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, it's great to, to hear your experiences and your background. Uh, you obviously very successful award winning CIO leader visionary here in Chicago and hope to have you back on again soon. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much, Patrick Shelley. It's a pleasure. And we wanted to thank you too, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 